0: Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, I'm joined again by the still charming and intelligent King Bolingbroke, who does indeed now uh, hold the endowed chair of, of anonymous Shakespeare studies at MCC. Uh, Monsieur Bolingbroke, how are you? Uh, I am very well, and uh,
1: we'll, have to, we'll have to talk to our benefactors and make sure that, uh, that, that Bitcoin clears the wallet, because I think they may have sent it to an erroneous wallet,
0: unfortunately not again. Um okay, <laughs> good. So we we've talked about uh Act 1 and we've talked about Act 2. Today we're going to talk about Act 3 focusing on King Lear, the character in particular. Um but Bolingbroke, what did we talk about last time? Last time we gave a fairly
1: novel account uh based in in part upon an article that where we t- where we made the case that Kent is perhaps more than the traditional literature on Shakespeare has made him seem that he has concealed himself and pretended to be one thing while doing another uh, in a way. I don't know that we made this comparison, but uh, kind of like Brutus in ancient Rome who puts on, he, he makes his himself his name and becomes a brute in order to pretend to be something he's not so that he can become the refounder of Rome in, in, driving out the Kings and bringing in the Republican. This is what, this is what Kent in a way is doing is trying to drive out the riffraff and bring back the true King by pretending to be foolish and over the top while secretly perhaps trying to effect a coup and trying to bring in followers and convince Lear that the time is, is right for him to return to the throne. Whereas uh, the result ends up being, Lear has already lost most of his followers. Kent himself is stuck in the stocks uh, by his own behest, at his own behest, it seems. And uh, Lear starts to lose his mind because of the way that people are treating him rather than rising up and taking the throne back from his daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's roughly what we covered last time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So here's a brief summary of Act 3. Uh, In act three, scene one, Kent is searching for Lear and he meets a gentleman who reports that Lear is minded like the weather, Uh, which means, you know, maybe, maybe things aren't going so well uh, mentally for him, according to the gentleman. Kent sends this man to French sources who are waiting in Dover uh, to give word. In act three, scene two, Lear speaks to the storm, demanding things of it. He is minded by the fool who suggests that he make up with his daughters and Kent meets up with them. There's a lot more to say about that, and we'll focus a great deal of our attention on Act 3, Scene 2. In Act 3, Scene 3, Gloucester tells Edmund, his bastard son, about France landing, and that he will help Lear. He asks Edmund to keep these things concealed, but as soon as he's gone, Edmund resolves to report both of these things to Cornwall. In Act 3, Scene 4, Edgar, uh, the natural son of uh, Gloucester, and Lear have what we might loosely call a discussion that leads Lear to take his clothes off and call Edgar a philosopher. In Act 3, Scene 5, Edmund does betray Gloucester. He sticks to his word, and Cornwall strips Gloucester of his earldom, giving it to Edmund. In Act 3, Scene 6, Lear launches an imaginary trial against his eldest daughters, and Gloucester tells Lear that his life is in danger. And Gloucester urges Lear to head to Dover as quickly as possible. And finally, in Act 3, Scene 7, Gloucester is captured. His eyes are brutally taken out and turned to jelly by Cornwall. And a noble servant stands up to Cornwall and strikes him severely enough that he eventually dies. And this servant is killed in turn by the vicious daughter, Regan. There's so much going on in Act 3, Bolingbroke. I don't know if this summary does this justice. Uh, what, What do you think? Is there anything that you want to add as far as the summary goes? there there is much to be
1: said but i think that i think that you touched enough points that it it shows where everything is headed and i think that given given the density of the act that's uh that's sufficient for our purposes
0: yes density density is off the chart in this play as a whole i remember originally we thought about doing just one session on king lear and i remember like right before the first session started you know a couple of hours before just thinking like how the hell could we possibly talk about all of it in one <laughs> session and i was so relieved when you immediately agreed to do five sessions on it um
1: it's, it's it's worthy of it it's
0: one of the longest plays and there's a lot in it yeah so then speaking of a lot being in it uh let's talk about act three scene two um uh, maybe we could read lear's first speech there yeah um, i can read
1: that if you like sure <clears throat> Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow. You cataracts and hurricanos spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks. You sulfurous and thought-executing fires. Vaunt couriers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts. Singe my white beard and thou all-shaking thunder. Strike flat the thick rotundity of the earth. Crack nature's molds. All Germans spill at once
0: that make ungrateful men. Whoa. Uh this is a pretty wild speech. Um, like, does it seem to you, I don't know, it seems like Lear wants provident elements of nature to destroy the other parts of nature, the molds of nature, as he says it, um, that make uh, like ungrateful human beings. Since, since he takes his daughters to be so ungrateful, it, it, it's almost as if he imagines nature kind of like polytheistic gods um, and he's sort of asking one part of nature to destroy another part of nature on his behalf since that other part of nature has done something unjust to him. And so nature here is seen as kind of provident in a in a strange polytheistic way.
1: Mm-hmm. that seems right. and that that tracks with where he heads in this. Um, it seems that in this act he more and more starts to doubt the providence of the gods and he the shift is he starts to move away from the gods and toward an understanding of nature and this i think is his first attempt at giving an account of nature Mm -hmm. Uh, as we say as we've said earlier on nature is brought up at the beginning of the play that Mm -hmm. in act one scene two edmund gives this great speech probably the most eloquent and thoughtful thing he does in the play in my opinion because he does end up getting a little bit over-aggressive and overacting and, and making himself look foolish on reflection when, when he uh, eventually, when not everything works out the way that he hopes. Uh, this is probably the most eloquent thing he says. And Lear now is giving a, a different account. Mm-hmm. Um, now, by the end of this episode, I think that we'll see that maybe Lear even lands on an account a lot like Edmund's. Mm-hmm. Uh, that nature is something like, just this bubbling forth of of energy and life but that there's not much that can be drawn from it from a moral standpoint
0: right if you're uh, clever or strong enough by nature to go against conventions you ought to yeah well not, not that you ought to but you know it's available to you because if if there's no moral ought in light of the character of nature in the way that edmund and lear seem to understand it at certain points
1: yeah and I will say also, aside from the the concept of a worship of nature, this could also be seen as a command of nature, where he's attempting, as we noted in the first episode, he mm-hmm. tries to have a godlike command over his kingdom, right, and this may be his the last gasp of that that he is going to attempt to exercise his sovereignty over the land over which he's the king, right. And in doing that, he, he calls upon nature to destroy everything about him that has harmed him in particular, to destroy the part of nature that makes people like his daughters be born. And um, this is a fundamental change he's asking for, by the way, the the phrase nature's Germans also appears in Macbeth. And in there, and I mean, just in, in the period when Shakespeare is writing this, that phrase, it's referring to like... Something like a uh, Darwinian idea of the the thing in nature that is at the very beginning. The seeds mm. that started all in nature. And he's talking in particular about the seeds that started all in, in grateful man. But it could also just be read when he says that makes ingrateful man to mean all men are ingrateful. And so we need to destroy the mold that has made man as he
0: is. Right. Right, that makes me, that reminds me, I guess maybe he talks about this a bit later. Or is this what the, the gentleman was saying? That Lear, oh, right, yeah, so in Act 3, Scene 1, uh, the gentleman's first speech when Kent is kind of asking, like, what's going on? He talks to the gentleman. The gentleman says this, contending with the fretful elements, bids the wind blow the earth into the sea, speaking of what, Lear seems to be hoping for, or what it means for your mind to be like the weather or swell the curled waters above above the main that things might change or cease tears his white hair, which the impetuous blasts with eyeless rage catch in their fury and make nothing of, strives in his little world of man to outscorn the to and fro conflicting wind and rain, this night wherein the cub-drawn bear would couch the lion and belly-pinched wolf Keep their fur dry, unbonneted. He runs and bids what will take all. But I guess I'm suddenly struck now that you say that, um, that if you want the earth to go into the sea, I mean, that's not exactly like the Genesis, like Noah's story, but there's something like this that Lear kind of, in light of his own situation, wants the whole world to be destroyed. Um, or and, at least this is how the gentleman interprets him. Right, and, and
1: maybe to... And I hadn't thought of this, but when you said Genesis, it brought to my mind um, the creation story in Genesis is creation by division. In particular, the water and the wa- the dry land is divided from the sea. And so Lear asking the dry land to go wash into the sea is asking
0: creation to be undone. Whoa. Okay, that that's really helpful. I think this will help us when we talk yeah. about... Yeah. A little bit later, some of the Christian slash pagan cosmos is coming into conflict kind of stuff in Act 3, Scene 4. Yes. All right. Uh, one other thing I did want to talk about at the beginning of Act 3, Scene 2, is maybe the just for a second the Fool's response to Lear, the response to the speech that we read or that you read. Mm-hmm. Just since we talked a little bit last time about the question of like whether or to what extent, like what what does the Fool represent in Shakespeare? Is the fool a philosophic type? Is the fool an Aristophanic type? Um, and I don't know that this response settles that question in any way, but um, I I kind of like, oh, so here's what the fool says in act three, scene two, right after Lear uh, makes demands of nature. And as you were saying, kind of acts like a God towards nature, this last gasp of his you know, divine sense of self, almost the fool in response says, oh, nuncle court, holy water in a dry house is better than this rainwater out a door. Good nuncle in. Ask thy daughter's blessing. Here's a knight pities neither wise men nor fools. Um, Well, this is something I guess I don't know anything about with respect to pagan religion, but does it seem like the holy water is another intrusion of Christianity into what was ostensibly a pagan cosmos at first in the play?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And it does, it it gets more the language ramps up as we, as we've noticed, it gets more and more Christian as the play goes on. Despite the fact that this just like, if we're, if you're just asking a question of history, the source material for King Lear, it's supposed to be pre-Christian Britain. It's, this is not at all supposed to be Christian. So it's, if, if this is the pagan world and the Christian world interacting, it's in the same way as it starts to in, for example, Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, because Mm -hmm. Christianity, like it hasn't been born yet but the forces that cause it to blossom and grow have already been planted in Rome. And so we're seeing Shakespeare sort of point to like, Hey, and this is the thing that makes Christianity become what it is in the Holy Roman empire. Same sort of thing here. Uh, The question of Christianity in Britain is alive, even though this isn't a Christian play.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So then, so, so I don't know. I was wondering if the fool was kind of doing a couple different things that like on one hand he's saying to Lear like go inside, uh you know, holy water is better than rain, almost like your very strange polytheistic interpretation of nature is something you should set aside in order to start moving towards a more Christian conception of nature, and then on the other hand, he says um, that oh, the knight pities neither the wise men nor fools. And that seems to be an account of somehow, you know, nature being indifferent. Like, why are you shouting at nature? It's going to be as it is and cannot be otherwise. So stop shouting at, that's kind of insane. Um, And then it it seems like in the middle, he has like a very just practical advice in a way. Although maybe that advice turns out to be wrong insofar as Gloucester comes and says later that the daughters want to kill Lear now. But nevertheless, it seems like the, the fool is kind of saying like Lear, you need to accommodate yourself to your new station in life, which is not being the king. You should humble yourself, go apologize. Like, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I wonder if like Kent has more spectacular plans. Like we talked about last time, he's maybe interested in a coup or coordinating French help to get revenge. Whereas maybe the fool is kind of like, "Uh, I don't know about big plans like that. Like, let's just do the plan that doesn't really need a lot of spectacular change, which is just saying sorry and just like, sleeping in your daughter's house and not asking too much of her. Um
1: yeah, no, I I think night. that that's exactly right and and uh we're going to connect back to the the here's a night pities neither wise men nor fools because we see that same theme arise in act 3 scene 4 both by the fool and by edgar as poor tom. Um yeah. this this is this is pointing to so the question from The Fool, if we're trying to make it a little bit bigger than the small concern that he's addressing, would mm-hmm. be something like, nature, as you're trying to interact with it, doesn't seem to be working out. Perhaps mm-hmm. we should return to
0: convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah.
1: Now... There, There is a, so Lear sort of confirms for us that he's feeling impotent and that's why he's commanding nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but he sort of, he comes to grips with it in the next speech. He he keeps yelling, right? He keeps shouting at nature. But then he says, nor rain, wind, thunder, fire are my daughters. I tax mm-hmm. not you elements with unkindness. Um, there And there's two implications of that. One, it's not the element's fault. And two, if my daughters don't obey me, what are the odds that the elements are going to obey me? And he uh-huh. so he starts to maybe come to his come to his senses, and later in that speech he says, "Then let fall your horrible pleasure. Here I stand, your slave, a poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man." Uh, so he starts by commanding nature and shouting at it to to obey his will, and then he comes to the conclusion that after the fool tries to give him this advice, he's like, "Well, I'm not going to apologize to my daughters. They don't even listen to me, and." of course the elements aren't going to listen to me. So I guess I'm nature's slave rather than nature's God.
0: Right. Oh, nice. That's, that's a nice of phrase. Thank you. Right. <laughs> oh no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that seems right that he has started to see nature in a slightly different way, or that maybe, maybe he was able to hear part of what the fool was saying. Um, I was curious what you made, Of the end of that speech, so like right after he says he was a poor, weak, uh, or poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man, he says, but yet I call you, and is he speaking to nature here? I call you servile ministers that will with two pernicious daughters join your high engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. Oh, ho, tis foul. Like, I I guess I was just wondering if there's a shift in the speech that at first Lear seems to be subscribing to what the fool proposes. That is to say, nature isn't different. Uh, nature owes me nothing. And he seems to be con- relatively content with that and sort of does see his status. Like you're just an old man in the rain shouting, you're weak and pathetic. You're not a King. You're not, you know, uh, nature's God, so to speak. But then I don't know, is he calling nature servile or is that a misreading of those lines? it seems to me he's talking about a particular
1: part of nature. Uh Um, But yet I call you servile ministers. Why are they servile ministers? Because they gave him the daughters that they gave him so that Mm -hmm. those same daughters could join nature with its uh, campaign against him that apparently has on him who is so old and white. And, and he's, he's now like insulting nature in a way like, you know, I'm your slave, but, boy, you you really, uh, I think it's supposed to be an insult at uh-huh. uh, first to call them servile ministers, but who it is that they're ministering to, I think would maybe be nature as a whole or some sort of like higher concept of nature. And he's talking about these elements that are now attacking him. And he's like, you must be in league with my daughters is the way right. that I read that.
0: Yeah, that makes, yeah, that that sounds completely right. And so then on one hand, maybe to like the greatest part of nature, which is, I guess, a strange way to put it, uh, Lear is like resigned to it being indifferent and yet he still interprets, interprets part of it as somehow being provident and like, yeah, worthy of being insulted. Like it's deserves contempt for teaming up with these ungrateful, uh, girls.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Maybe like the, the comparison would be something like, um, if you have a commander, like a commander in chief of an army he sends out generals into different regions to fight the war. And perhaps the general in one region will team up with evil people with bad intentions who are going to help him accomplish his goal. And so you could attack that general and what he's doing, even if it's still the goal of the commander in chief, because that general is doing something that, in your eyes, is
0: despicable. Mm-hmm. Right. No, that that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I think that must be how how Lear understands it. Hmm. So then, and I don't know. Do you do you have more that you want to say about this speech of Lear's, or should we move into what the fool follows up with? No, we we can move on. It's okay. So the fool says. He that has a house to put head in has a good headpiece. The codpiece that will house before the head has any. The head and he shall louse. So beggars marry many. The man that makes his toe, what he his heart should make, shall of a corn cry woe and turn his sleep to wake. But there was never yet fair woman, but she made mouths in a glass. So it seems like the fool's doing a lot maybe the core of what I took him to be saying is something like, well, first of all, go inside, like go inside the house. So this seems to be a constant refrain, get out of the storm. Um, But the line, there's more to say about the speech certainly than this. But when he says the man that makes his toe, what he, his heart should make, does it seem to you that he's saying something like in a way that Lear is making too much of the situation? They're like, yes, his daughters are ungrateful. His daughters are not that good, But that maybe in light of the fool's earlier suggestion, like, hey, dude, just go back and ask if you can go inside and just say sorry. That like maybe sometimes we expect like a philosophic type of person, if the fool is philosophic, to do spectacular things. Um, But maybe sometimes like philosophic advice actually isn't going to be that interesting. It's going to be like go inside (laughs) or say sorry. Um, There's like a, a person I knew who'd studied with Alan Bloom like an undergrad, and that they said something to Alan Bloom at one point, like, you know, after studying Plato and asking all these, like, philosophical or, like, moral or political questions, like, when are we going to get to, like, the real philosophical stuff, like, the stuff that's really going to blow my mind, and Bloom said something like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is it. Like, Not, not to say that there's not something to say about science, but that maybe we expect kind of like maybe Glaucon in Plato's Republic like wants philosophy to like have fireworks. Like I want to behold like the sun itself with my eyes, like the good or something like that. In that maybe actually the philosopher will often do things that are pretty understated in a way. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and the,
1: I I don't know what to, I mean, it could just do you make anything of the sexual joke at the beginning of the of the song, or do you think that he, it's just a joke? Do you think that there's anything about the um, copulation point, um, the cod piece finding a house before the head has any? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what if 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 there's a connection with
0: that, but yeah, I mean, I think that there must be, but and maybe it could be connected with the thing. <laughs> About women said at the end, where it seems like they're saying for there was never well he says for there was never yet fair woman, but she made mouths in a glass I, I. E something like she's always smiling in a mirror or wanting to get a look at herself, but almost like to some extent the the fool may be saying something like i I don't know if this is quite right, but the women are vain, and maybe there's a potential connection between vanity and in being ungrateful insofar as like maybe the daughters thought they were pretty like awesome. And then Cordelia turned out to be better than they were. And that that's like part of the reason that they betray them. That I don't know, but I, I want to do something with the vulgar joke, but I just, it's not obvious to me where it goes, or I don't know how to make sense of it.
1: The, the only thought that I have is that Lear is making a lot of his daughters coming out of him and mm-hmm. him that, you know, that he's joined with these pernicious daughters and that he's the source of them. And, Nothing comes from nothing in this whole thing. Um, mm. In a way, Lear is thinking of the thing that came from his loins before he's thinking of his own head. When the way that he uh, arranged the kingdom, um, his his codpiece had a, had a house before his head did. And th- this now fundamentally is the case for him, too, because he's... Mm thinking of thinking of his seed rather than thinking of his um, well-being.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really good. So I think that fits in then with like making the toe into the heart. Yeah, um, yeah that he – like these things happen, bad things happen, but all that you can do is take a look at your circumstances and like try to see what's best to do in light of that as opposed to just haranguing the elements, like yelling at the sky – about how bad your daughters is and how they should be punished. You could do that, but like you could also go inside. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right.
0: Um, so then Kent emerges. And you, I think you had something to say about man's nature with respect to Kent's speech.
1: Yeah. Um, So we've talked about, we've had one view of nature, that Lear is a god over nature, and then nature now is a god he submits to, and then maybe some of the underlings of the god he despises. And then Kent brings in this other question. So, okay, i got got to bring this in as well. If you look at the... So Lear is a famously really hard stage uh, play to stage, because Mm -hmm. if you look at scene two, the stage direction, at least in the Folger edition says, storm still. And it says that all through this act. Mm-hmm. What that means is that there has to be really loud noises while Lear is giving these dense, strange speeches where he's shouting at the heavens. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's that's the other part of nature that's present, is that Lear is outside in the rain in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is trying to command the gods of nature as a god himself, and then submits to nature. And then Kent comes in and starts talking about human nature down at um, line 47. Mm -hmm. He says, since I was man, such sheets of fire, such bursts of horrid thunder, such groans of roaring wind and rain, I never remember to have heard. Man's nature cannot carry the affliction nor the fear. Um, And so now Kent is making this connection between. So first, not only is he talking about nature, like what you experience when you walk outside, but he's saying this nature is different than the other nature I've ever experienced. Now making it in a sense supernatural or at least uh, higher and greater and more impressive. So pointing to this is, this is not like the regular nature you encounter outside. And now he's saying that man's nature, which uh, if you're going to make any real account of nature as such man's nature is going to be part of it. Man's nature cannot carry the affliction nor the fear of this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not totally sure what to make of this, but it seems that Kent is is tying a lot of threads together on the question of nature here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. he. So he says, the wrathful skies in the speech gallow the very wanderers of the dark and make them keep their caves. That That struck me as being reminiscent of a line that the gentleman says in act three scene one, when he kind of talks about even like very desperate animals, they're not outside right now. Like even the, like, Oh, is it the bear? (laughs) Who's like basically had the milk sucked dry, the belly pinched wolf. Yeah. The cub drawn bear. They're not outside right now. The gentleman says, so sort of like, why is Lear outside? But then Kent sort of changes this up a little bit and sort of seems to say that, uh like i don't know the the kind of people who'd usually be out at night maybe people who aren't that good uh they are not out here i don't know so so i think there's you're right to say that there's some he seems to be tying nature back maybe to some kind of sense of justice um that like if you were a bad man you would look at the sky maybe and think that um you shouldn't be outside right now because you could be punished by the gods now, if we can say,
1: "Enter Lear," who says exactly that, uh, the, the next line, Lear says, "Let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter o'er our heads find out their enemies now, mm-hmm. tremble thou wretch that has within these undivulged crimes unwipped of justice, hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured and thou similar of virtue, thou that art incestuous, caitiff to pieces shake." that under covert and convenient seeming has practiced on man's life. Close pent up guilts, rive your concealing continents and cry these dreadful summoners grace. I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Uh, just quickly before, I'll, I want you to comment on that speech, but quickly before that, yeah. just that last point that he makes, um, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. He, I think classes himself into the group of sinners that he describes, but wants to say that, I am a sinner too, but in truth, in the balance, I've been more sinned against, and I am still being punished by this. So I hope that the gods really hit their hit their aim with this storm, whoever it is that they're trying to attack. Mm-hmm. And so Lear, he returns to the gods here. He hasn't talked about gods at all in this scene, but so it was commanding nature as a god, submitting to nature as a god. Um, and then Kent points out that maybe human nature can't stand this. And uh, there's a question of justice and Lear latches onto this and says, okay, yes, there are gods and they're trying to find out all the people who have committed crimes, probably in hopes of saying that they're going to hurt his daughters is really what the final message I think is. But what do you think?
0: Right. No, that that's right. So before it was like a provident kind of nature as you're suggesting. And uh, yeah, then submitting to nature, uh, and now now it's explicitly the gods, as you rightly said, that they hadn't been talked about before. Um, so it, it almost seems like uh, if you have like, th- I, I don't know, at least three views on the table of like nature as provident and polytheistic in a certain sense with different parts, then you have a kind of nature that's indifferent to the concerns of man that just reigns when it rains, And then now you have the gods openly that like, no, uh, let's well, just, it should just be the gods. Um, and then I don't, this probably goes too far, but I wonder if if Lear is a man who's more sinned against than sinning. So he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of bad. So let's find out how bad I am by standing out in the storm. If I'm struck down, then that would be evidence that I'm a bad person. But if I'm not struck down, it would be evidence that though I'm a sinner, I don't deserve to be struck down. And I hope that others are struck down or, or something to that effect. Um
1: that sounds like right. it's
0: like a test of his own justice to try to say, do I deserve to be punished or not? Let me stand out in the storm a little bit longer and find out. Well, and, and to that point, he's trying to first test his control over
1: justice because he was the ultimate hand of justice his whole life. Right? Yeah. As being the king. And he's trying to test that when he's shouting at the elements and trying to bring them into under his control, but then uh, maybe he he now is coming to terms with the fact that he's not in control of justice, but mm. if he submits to it, perhaps he'll get what he deserves, and he hopes, as he says in the last line, that that is something better than a sinner.
0: Right. Right, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so he wa- he wanted to be in control of it. Now he's not in control of it, but he's still hopeful that nevertheless – the gods will find out those who simulate virtue um, but are really, you know, concealing their vice. Um, And then, so Kent in his response sort of makes another move to say, let's go inside to this like little hovel or small kind of cruddy shelter uh, or poorly built shelter that he says, some or, or gracious, gracious, my Lord, hard by here is a hovel. Some friendship will lend you against the tempest. Repose you there while I go to this hard house. There's more. He says more, but I I don't know. Does it seem like there? Kent is now like, I wonder. So maybe you could say something like this. Originally, Lear combined the gods and nature into one thing. And now he's split them apart. Now there's nature that's indifferent to man. And there are gods who hopefully uphold justice. And so now Kent is saying, okay, Lear, you've, you've untethered the gods and nature from each other, at least for the moment. So now Kent speaks about nature in the kind of indifferent way, sort of like here's a tempest. Let's use human artifice to shield ourselves from the elements that are indifferent to us, that we need technology to you know, protect our like fragile human bodies from the elements with. That Now now that Lear may have split these things apart, at least in the moment, because I think Lear seems to move through a lot of different ways of understanding these things as the this scene even moves on. But that now Kent thinks like, okay, good, let's use artifice against indifferent nature now that you're talking about the gods or something like that. Like we don't have to stand out in the storm maybe any longer, I don't know. I think that's right. And he even, um, something about, and and
1: by the way, I think that it's fair to say that Kent is not Caius in any of the scenes with Lear when it's, when it's just he and Lear after Lear loses his mind, he seems to switch back to being practical Kent, trying to save his master's life. He doesn't sound like Caius. He doesn't act impetuous or foolish. He's, he's cogent and he's clear and he's focused on doing the right thing. Right. Um, And, and so his, him, him having these more subtle thoughts and everything seems to work. And Lear Sort of, sort of shakes, shakes himself off, and he says, "My wits begin to turn." He, mm-hmm. he's, he, he realizes, "Oh my gosh, I've been acting crazy," <laughs> and he turns to the fool and he starts having compassion on him, and right. says, "You need to go inside if you're cold. I, I'm, I know I'm feeling cold, so you must be. So why don't you go inside?" Um. Yeah, right. I think I think that you're right on, Kent. I think that that it it and it works to it works to kick Lear. In the butt and wake him up out of his stupor a little bit,
0: right, right. We're now, yeah, that's right. So he's asking, yeah, the fool, are you cold? <laughs> and then, and then he suddenly realizes that, uh, oh, how does he put it? This, oh, what is this straw? Where is this straw, my fellow? The art of our necessities is strange and can make vile things precious. That different circumstances make what appears to us as good different normally you would look at straw and think like uh i'm a king i don't sleep on straw but under the circumstances now uh your account of what's good changes based on the particular circumstances now straw looks very nice uh to kent sorry not to kent but to lear probably to kent too um yeah that's right and um and he begins to also
1: when he Despite, despite what he's feeling, and despite what he says later about why he's out in the storm, um, you know, trying to keep his mind off of his troubles, he says, mm-hmm. "I have one part in my heart that's sorry yet for thee." Uh, mm-hmm. That he somehow regrets that the fool has to be going through this with him.
0: Right. Right, and it is it is striking that the fool is so loyal.
1: Yeah, I the. As he says, as he says, um, the fool will stay in his, in that song, in the, in the moment when everybody is leaving and everybody proves themselves a knave who stays except for the fool, because it's expected that you're going to act like a fool, but um somehow he, he seems to have a nobility about him. Mm-hmm. And as we've said, it might be more than he seems, but it's, it's hard to place exactly what that means.
0: Right. Yeah, I think I think you're right to say that he must be noble because it seems like the fool is probably smart enough to accommodate himself to any regime type in a certain sense. Like, OK, there's new people ruling, but I can say pleasing things to those people, too. It wouldn't be that hard. Whereas like he'd rather spend time like so unless he thinks that Cornwall and Albany are just going to like kill him right away, which I don't see any evidence that that's the case. There's not really any advantage to being out with Leah right now. I, I can't conceive of any, especially because. It's not obvious to me that the fool is all in on the coup attempt, like Kent. That maybe, to some extent, the fool is kind of chastising Kent. Uh, maybe, well, he was in the stocks. Richard says, "Like, I'm not the kind of guy who's in the stocks, but he's the kind of guy who's out in the rain, and that seems worse, like, or or potentially worse." Yeah. So no, I, so I agree that the the fool does seem to strike a noble figure. Yeah. um and he offers a pretty remarkable speech to end act 3 scene 3
1: yes and we we should maybe say quickly that he reiterates the thing um he that has and a tiny wit with hey ho the wind and the rain must make content with his fortunes fit though the rain it raineth every day um nature's indifferent if you have just a little bit of brains you shouldn't be subjecting yourself to dangers just because you're experiencing an existential crisis, uh, it's raining outside. We should go inside.
0: Right, right. Do do what the circumstances uh, ask you to do. Especially like of a small wit, but be content uh, with his fortune's fit, as you're saying. Yeah. Um.
1: um but yes, then he gives this uh, peculiar adaptation of a spe- of a prophecy made by Merlin. Uh, according to historical record and according to himself.
0: Right. This is a brave night to cool a courtesan. I'll speak a prophecy ere I go. When priests are more in word than matter, when brewers mar their malt with water, when nobles are their tailor's tutors, no heretics burned, but wenches suitors. It seems like those, the, the opening lines of the speech, the first six lines of it, are devoted to speaking about a world that's kind of out of joint Mm -hmm. um, that like, yeah, priests, they say things, but their matter or their actions mm, don't seem to line up with their speeches. Uh, Goodness gracious. There are people making beer and they're like diluting it with water. Those evil people doing that kind (laughs) of thing. Uh, Nobles. They're like, uh, I guess, just spending time with the people who make their clothes Right,
1: which is uh, would be day classe.
0: Right, right. And no heretics burned, but wenches suitors. <laughs> so at any rate, it seems like the opening of the speech, it seems like less like a prophecy and more like a statement about how imperfect the world is um, or that, I don't know, you, you will be very disappointed if you're hoping that all these people are going to be hit by lightning. Um, that This is just kind of what happens yeah what is there anything else to say about those those opening lines of the full speech
1: um it talks about the the wenches suitors is there it may just be on my mind because we were just talking about um the odyssey but uh mm-hmm. there's no heretics burned but this is he saying that but the people who are burned are the suitors of wenches right so um I don't know if it's supposed to be a reference to Odysseus, but that's the only other thought that I would add something about um, Odyssean justice and uh, that perhaps Odyssean justice is not true justice, but uh, Mm -hmm. personal justice rather than,
0: than, uh, than real justice. Right. Which even raises something like, about Kent's kind of claim, I don't know, or that there's like a weird way that if you're the king and you have like a lot of family members you're interacting with political justice and personal justice seem to get mixed together in a strange way, because is France coming in to restore Lear or to take advantage of the potential civil war between Cornwall and Albany is like, is that good for England? Like mm-hmm. Should Lear still be ruling? Should he not be? Or at least it's like a question, I suppose, that is raised by what you were saying. I think that's right. Right, so then, then the full, the rest of his speech seems to be, off for the. it's the world that we want, where justice and, like, or, yeah, what we deserve corresponds to, to what we get. When he says, when every case in law is right, no squire in debt, nor no poor knight. When slanders do not live in tongues, nor cut purses come not to the throngs when usurers tell their gold in the field and bods and whores do ch- churches build. Then shall the realm of Albion come to great confusion. Uh, then comes the, the time whose li- who lives to see it, that going shall be used with feet. This prophecy Merlin shall make, for I live before his time. So the world, oh, I see. So it's like the world is imperfect now, but Merlin evidently presupposed, or like there's a hope that the world Uh, will be set right, but it will take magic in order to do it. But even with this magical world, there are still whores uh, who are building the churches. (laughs) So it's like, it's nice that they're building a church, but like, even the utopian vision that's being imagined here is imperfect.
1: Yeah, I mean, and whores and and bods, I mean, in a way it is uh, the, I mean, just think of like the Medici's, the the traditional patrons are bods in in their own way and are whore sons or, or uh, consorted or whoremongers maybe is a better thing to say of them. Uh, so even in the best of times when lots of churches are being built and people are righteous and whatever, the people who are supplying them are still not the best people. Right. Um, and by the way, the joke this prophecy Merlin shall make for I live before his time is funny because Merlin (laughs) lives backwards through time. (laughs) Right. Right. Right.
0: Okay. (laughs) So, so I think it made a lot of sense to move more or less through just about every speech of scene two, since it seemed to be one of the most rewarding scenes in the book. So maybe we won't spend quite as much time on Act 3, Scene 4. Nevertheless, we have to spend a decent amount of time on it. Um, so Act 3, Scene 4 opens with Kent with Kent speaking. And in his first speech in Act 3, Scene 4, I remember you had traced out an arc of things with respect to nature to talk about. Is, does this speech strike you as related to the arc that you had in mind? Yeah. Um,
1: the tyranny of the open nights too rough for nature to endure. Um, he didn't say man's nature, which is what he says the first time here. It's that nature cannot endure it. And in that sense, we would be equating man's nature with nature simply. Right. And that's a, that's a interesting claim. And so for, for Kent, if, if Lear, as we're about to see lands on a low, but solid view of nature, mm-hmm. Kent seems to have a somewhat more elevated view of nature that the things that are happening around them are accidents attendant to nature but that nature itself is something um perhaps more
0: delicate but greater than these events hmm. that's interesting yeah that that makes sense um And so maybe Kent's moving back and forth between views of nature too in light of circumstances. I mean, maybe what you're saying is what his view is. Um, Although maybe to talk earlier about the tempest isn't necessarily to talk about nature simply. could have just been talking about those circumstances when he seems to talk about a kind of indifferent tempest to human concerns. Um, But based on this passage, what you're saying seems right. And and as we would say... um... He
1: didn't use the word nature when he referred to the tempest. He did right. when he referred to man though. And again, here right. he's right. making a distinction between the tempest and nature. Right, right. Because the open night being too rough is some the tyranny of the open night is not nature. Tyranny okay, and here here's maybe another point. Um we'll we'll tie this in real quick. Uh Act three, scene four, line one fifty-nine. Mm-hmm uh, Gloucester says, let this tyrannous night take hold upon you. Um, that this, this idea of referring to the night as tyrannous from both of these people who are still firmly set in the courtly setting, right? Kent and Gloucester, I think their view of nature is going to be, um, uh, it 's Edmund Burke when he 's talking about natural law, he says that they 're not accessed directly like sunlight, but that they 're all refracted as through windows mm-hmm. and the and the windows they 're refracted through is uh history and society and politics and This refraction is would be i think how an individual like Kent and an individual like Gloucester would see nature, and so mm-hmm. for them within the safety of their stained glass church through which they're viewing the, the beams of light that would be natural law. They look on what's happening at the outside as disorder and tyranny and what's happening on the inside as order and justice. And so um, perhaps maybe saying something about the idea that conventions in their, in their best moments are the, iteration of nature which we're able to affect and so for kent this is not nature for Gloucester, this is not nature nature is something better than this
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and then maybe to say something about that then in lear's response it's not starting at the beginning of it but um i don't think he uses the word nature but when he says filial ingratitude Is it not as this mouth should tear this hand for lifting food to it? But I will punish home. No, I will weep no more. In such a night, to shut me out, pour on, I will endure. In such a night as this, O Regan, Goneril, your old kind father, whose frank heart gave all. Oh, that way madness lies. Let me shun that. No more of that. But I guess as far as something about nature goes, it's something like, okay, so these are his daughters they therefore owe him something uh and but he's also like ties them together in a kind of unnatural way like he uses a natural metaphor like uh, as though mouth should tear this hand for lifting food to it so it's like here's the hand hand there we'll say that again biting the hand that feeds you it could also mean biting your own hand right right that's true that's true but but it seems like the metaphor makes the connection tighter than it really is like you know daughters are dear but it, i think almost like in a strict sense it doesn't seem like lear is the hand and like the daughters are the mouth i mean it just seems to make there is a separation or a division between father and daughter and he's acting as if there's no division because you wouldn't wish for the punishment of your hand or the punishment of your mouth you know if it bit the hand or something like that yeah would you
1: punch yourself in the mouth if you bit your hand
0: right that would be crazy but <laughs> yeah. nevertheless he wishes for their punishment it seems like I think we talked about this a little, little bit, and I think we read about this, but that it does seem like if anything is driving Lear to be mad, it would be his just sense of this ingratitude and that it's not being punished. And he would rather kind of stay out in the storm and endure it so that he doesn't have to think about it. Um, I think you'd you said something like this earlier that, yeah, this pain in the body prevents the mind from thinking thoughts clearly. Yeah, and that he'd he rather do that than endure thinking about his daughters being ungrateful and also not being punished.
1: Yeah, that's what he says in in this same scene or in the same uh, speech. Line 13, when the mind's free, the body's delicate. This tempest in my mind doth from my senses take all feeling else, save what beats there. And then he goes off and starts thinking about his daughters. But his point is, I'm standing in the storm, to take my mind off of the thing that's tormenting it. And as soon as he starts thinking about it, the thing that's tormenting him, and by the way, what is tormenting him? It is uh, uh, just real quick to jump over to act three, scene three, Gloucester and Edmund's discussion, uh, that it becomes an unnatural dealing the way that, uh, the way that Lear's daughters are dealing with him. It's a question of nature to them that, oh, this is so unnatural what they're doing. And so for Lear, they are breaking this view of nature that Kent is trying to enjoin, this mm-hmm. higher view, this more exalted view of this connection between family and the filial piety and all these things. He's just like, that's been smashed to pieces. And so all I have left is this storm. And lucky for me, the storm is also taking my mind off of that because if I think too much about it, I'm going to lose my mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Or yeah. and Or I guess we'll wait maybe until Edgar says, if you think uh, to say too much more or or for me to add, add to what you're saying. Um, So moving a little bit farther into the scene, I mean, something that maybe because I, to some extent I wanted to, to resist the reading that Lear is crazy insofar as like, I don't know. It's just too easy not to then like, and I'm not saying you ever suggested something like this, but that it it can lead to like easy interpretations of like, well, he's saying this, but he's crazy. So it doesn't really matter. We don't have to look at it anymore. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: So I'm like, always like strive against that kind of reading. But when he talks to Edgar on the next page, when he sees Edgar's kind of like in a, you know, rough condition and is speaking very strangely, it's like Lear says two or three times something to the effect of. You must have ungrateful daughters. (laughs) Like he kind of like universalizes the cause of his own suffering and then seems to conclude that that must be the cause of anybody else who is suffering like he is. Um, and it seems kind of astonished, you know, by the fact that maybe Edgar doesn't have ungrateful daughters, but that that does strike me as a little bit crazy to, to one, just say that even once, like you're in a bad state, you must have bad daughters, but then to like double down on it and say it again, to really think like, that's, that's what must be causing this. Um, right, I suppose like, that, that struck me as like more, mad than maybe anything else that lear had said or done so far and it's and it's
1: pitiful um lear is his madness is not raving so that's that's the thing about uh hamlet's madness for example it's a really easy thing for high school teachers to say oh hamlet's crazy what he says doesn't make sense because then they don't have to read it um, right and i feel like a lot of us got some a reading something like that if we ever read hamlet in high school but mm. Hamlet even when you do read his what he's saying closely and in the parts where he seem like he might actually be um losing it or becoming kind of manic he is not pitiful. He's he's maybe sympathetic that like you can understand him and you can feel what he's feeling, you can understand it. Lear when you look at what's happening to him, you I at least for me I just feel like grief for how horrible his situation is. And mm-hmm. so like, although yes, I, I a hundred percent agree. Uh, did your daughters bring you to this? Both Kent and the fool are kind of like, Lear, he doesn't have any daughters. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, right. but he just, like, he can't let it go because in his mind, that is the only thing that could bring you to that, that level. It's, it's, um, it's very sad. It's tragic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and then the fool has his like practical suggestion, like when Lear's like, you know, if you saved nothing, you could have saved nothing. And the fool's like, well, he reserved a blanket like the fool's like, <laughs> relentlessly practical in this scene. Right. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> now, before we get into the next thing that we're going to look at, I, I assume the next thing we're going to look at, I want to. The, the shift into the more Christian view of things becomes more explicit in this scene. Mm-hmm. Lear starts with when he gets into, he comes inside of the, or he's about to come inside of the house and he says to himself, is this what all of the poor people have been experiencing this whole time? I've been the king, right? If that's the case, then I have been so monstrous and evil to them. And so he says to all the other Kings and to all of the other nobility, Although they're not present, he says, take physic pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a direct, like the the phrase superflux, the idea of giving the excess of what you have to others to make them better. This Mm -hmm. is just the Christian idea of uh, atonement and forgiveness of sin and the grace of Jesus Christ uh, being superabundant. And the grace of the saints in the Catholic tradition being superabundant and able to supply for the wants of the individuals who are beneath them and who could benefit from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fool, right after that, uh, comes out and yells that poor Tom, uh, Edgar in disguise, is a spirit. Right. Um, and him being afraid of a spirit in this way and calling it a spirit, its uh, there's this implication that it's like a demon. And so it's, it becomes this almost like superstitious Christian setting starting in this scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems right. Uh, and I think, yeah, right before, uh, well, just what you're talking about with the superflux, uh, Lear does say, nay, get thee in, I'll pray, and then I'll sleep. And you could imagine that he's praying to the gods he spoke to earlier, but in light of what you're saying, well, I mean, it's hard to know exactly what, his theological conception is since it's sort of like shifted a little bit. But as you rightly yeah, suggest, like the the Christianity gets amped up. Like that I don't know, like somehow like Lear's the end of Lear's world or sorry, the end of Lear's rule seems to somehow in a I don't know why this is the case, but somehow there's like cosmic significance somehow that we're moving from like a kind of like pagan epoch into a Christian epoch. Um and I don't even think you need to be Hegelian about that since like, whatever, like like things change every time. Right. <laughs> and there are like different dominant, you know, accounts of the cosmos. So I guess we don't even need to talk about that, but it does seem like somehow the cosmos of King Lear is like in between the Christian world and the pagan world. And like, this is the point at which it, you see the break more fully to some extent.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And... Yeah, I mean, it just it continues to come up. Um, And there may be there may be the question of why Shakespeare would do this. Um, One preliminary suggestion that I think is important to bear in mind is that Shakespeare was a writer, and he understood the art of writing. Uh, There's a famous moment in his career when he wrote Richard II, a play of which I am particularly fond, it has one of the best characters in all of Shakespeare in it. Um, And Richard II, he wrote it and there's a scene where Richard II is tried and deposed and removed from the throne. Uh, That play went through the censors of Queen Elizabeth and Mm -hmm. she said that scene will never ever be shown on stage while I'm the queen Mm. Uh, because it was in her mind, a direct critique of her and she did not want to have people see a English monarch deposed on the stage. And, Mm Shakespeare seemed to have learned from this lesson, and when he wanted to make his critiques both of the regime, of the religion, of the politics and the philosophy of his day, he learned to do it in a more veiled way. Um, For example, Macbeth, in my opinion, contains a very deep critique of the English monarchy and the way that it's conducted under the divine right of kings. Um, This play contains some interesting questions about Christianity, despite the fact that it's not a Christian play, not in a Christian era that provides it a lot of cover.
0: So Shakespeare can look at these things. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, That Shakespeare would need to do that. That, that. And that Shakespeare is so good that he could take a practical necessity, like, you know, not critique the regime or the religion openly, but not just do it in a way that he conceals the fact that like, Oh, ha ha. I'm, you know, critiquing England uh, and you didn't notice or something like that, but it's like, he could do that. And at the same time, make it like a great thematic philosophical question for us to wrestle with.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. In order to, in order to pull his critique, you have to be looking carefully, which is who he's talking to in in putting the writing in a more, um, shall we say esoteric or uh, protecting from persecution Uh, type of type of
0: format right right so should we read edgar's speeches uh in act 3 scene 4 around line 86 where he mentions the commandments
1: yeah so um for these speeches why i find them interesting and particularly the first speech but he he brings it all back up again in the second speech he edgar pulls in several of the commandments and a reference to matthew chapter 5 And the way he does it, I'm still not totally sure what it means, but I find it interesting. I think it's worth noting. Um, So uh, let's see. Do you you want me to read it? Would you like
0: to read it? Well, I think you have a little bit more to say about us. Maybe I'll read it. Okay. Uh, Take heed, O the foul fiend. Obey thy parents. Keep thy words justice. Swear not. Commit not with man's sworn spouse. Set not thy heart... Set not thy sweet heart on proud array. Tom's a cold.
1: And Lear responds, what hast thou been? Hmm. And he goes on to, to pretty much reiterate the same basic that he, he reiterates how in wherein he sort of broke the commandments that he, that he states, not all of them, but um, some of them in various ways, for example, committing adultery and having lust in his heart and, and so on. Hmm. Um, But the the commandments that he names are obey thy parents. That's in the 10 commandments, number five, keep thy words justice. That would be um, bear not false witness. That's number nine, swear not. That's Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Commit not with man sworn spouse. That's adultery. That's commandment number seven and set not thy sweetheart on proud array. That would be um, covet. Be be not covetous. uh, Thou shalt not covet. That's Mm -hmm. commandment number 10, but he skips commandments one through four and six and eight. Uh, The nature of commandments one through four are that they're focused on God Mm -hmm. primarily. And then also the question of, of man's life and the sanctity of man's life. So one through four and six through eight all deal with either directly with God or harming individuals directly with either stealing or murdering. Mm -hmm. And so the thing Tom's advice seems to point away from a focus on God or the gods, and toward a focus on our fellow man, but not in the most direct way, right Hobbes' is, Hobbes's point that he makes is essentially stealing and murder are the most dangerous things that you're going to have to deal with in this life, and we have to provide for them That's what politics is right but um, Tom wants to say that what's most important on an individual level is not focusing on those more direct matters but on indirect matters on how you could harm people not with what you do to them but what you do in regards to them right if you Mm -hmm. cheat on if you cheat with a man's wife you're harming him but not directly if you dishonor your parents you're not physically or directly harming them but you're dishonoring them Mm -hmm. um swearing uh coveting none of these are are direct wrongs done to the person against whom the sin is committed, but they are all sins that deal with other people in more of a political context. And so anyway, that's, that's my, my general statement on it. Um, It goes further into the question of the, of the Christian thing that we've brought in because Mm -hmm. this would be anachronistic. They wouldn't have the old Testament in Lear's time. They wouldn't have had access to it. And so him using these commandments in this way it's pointing to this new cosmos, this broader cosmos that we're looking at. Um, that's that's all that I can say about it for now. I think, uh, but I'd, I'd like to hear what you have to
0: add. Well, no, I, I think I, I agree with the analysis of the commandments and your account of like what's left out um, and why, and the sort of like different types of sins. Um, so to maybe say something about Edgar's follow-up speech that he offers. It's, it's a kind of a long speech. Maybe we won't read it, but as you rightly say, the first, you know, more than 10 lines deal with Edgar's account of how he, you know, committed various sins along the lines of, uh, you know, the sins that he had mentioned. But after his after he concludes um, mentioning all of his sins, then he says, he stops and he says, keep thy foot out of brothels, thy hand out, out of plackets thy pen from Fender's books, and defy the foul fiend. Still through the hawthorn blows the cold wind. Uh lay or sorry, says suum mun nani, Dolphin, my boy, boy, Sessa, let him trot by. <laughs> um, but but it seemed I don't know if this is the right way to read the speech, but it almost seemed like a like closer to the top of the page, the fool. Talks about it being cold again. The cold night will turn us all to fools and madmen. And here it seems like Edgar's saying, on one hand, I sinned a lot. Uh, Not like maybe they are worse people, but I definitely sinned a lot. But then after he says, I sinned a lot, then he says, but you shouldn't sin. Don't do it. It's bad. But then he or seems to say that it's bad. But on the other hand, he seems to say that um, still through the hawthorn blows the cold wind. Like, whether you sin or don't sin the wind, like it's cold, you're going to be cold. Because, and this might be important if Lear had thought that part of the way that the connection between justice and the divine was supposed to work is that you almost get to witness in real time the punishment of those who are wicked um, in this life. And I wonder if like the way that Lear ends up taking this is in a kind of non-Christian direction insofar as you know shortly thereafter not not immediately but shortly thereafter well i mean immediately after he tears off his clothes um and says uh thou art the thing itself unaccommodated man is no more uh but such a poor bare, forked animal as thou art off you you lendings come unbutton here so he takes off his clothes becomes unaccommodated man And I know you have a lot to say about this uh, particular part, but to add one more thing, is that shortly thereafter, Lear starts to inquire into causes um, of thunder. Like he, he, he starts looking at nature as somehow necessitated or caused as opposed to provident. And then he starts calling Edgar a philosopher, the Athenian, the Theban. And I wonder if somehow the effect of Edgar's speech was to drive home certain things that somehow Lear didn't want to think about, that he wants to think that there's a correspondence between what you deserve and what you get. He consistently sees "Mm, that's kind of not the case, and maybe he's wrestling with this. But then Edgar's like, look, sinners are cold right now. People who don't sin are cold right now. That's not how it works. And that because Lear's mind has not moved into a Christian cosmos, so to speak, that to him, it's like, look, there's these polytheistic gods that don't support justice, and like, I don't care about them. I'm now in light of my sense that these gods don't support justice, now I'm going to inquire into nature as caused because I can see that the gods of nature don't support justice. And that may or may not be where Edgar wants to go, especially in light of the fact that he's talking about commandments. Um, I think you have a lot to say about that, but it does seem like Edgar's speech here somehow moves Lear to some extent towards a kind of natural philosophic position.
1: I think that I think you're exactly right in where it moves Lear. And in my opinion, Edgar, by the end of this play, I think, shows that he, he's had an education in his return to nature, in, in his pretending to be poor Tom, his interactions with Lear, all of these things that occur and watching and seeing the deceit of his brother and coming to terms with it and learning from it. All of that has taught him and he's learned the lesson, I think, is what we learned by the end of the play. Lear learns a lesson too, but I don't think it's a lesson that Edgar's trying to teach him. Because what Edgar says, it comports with the other things we've been pointing out, particularly the fool keeps saying, you know, the rain that's happening right now, it's falling on everyone's head. It doesn't matter whether you're good. doesn't matter whether you're bad. doesn't matter whether your daughters are mean to you. You need to go inside. And this is where Edgar ends, right? The still the Hawthorne blows, still through the Hawthorne blows the cold wind. Um, and as the fool said above the cold night will turn us all to fools and madmen. or earlier, uh, the cold night cares not if you're a fool or a wise man, right? Right. Uh, this really to me, and if you were inclined to lean in this direction would invoke again, the sermon on the Mount, when Christ says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. So this is a Christian concept, just as much as it's a, the indifference of nature, pagan concept. The point being that rain actually can also be a blessing, right? The unjust could also be hoping for rain so that their crops will flourish or that their well will be full. Um, But uh, they may not deserve it, although the just do. And yet they both get the reward because the unjust lives next door to the the just. Mm -hmm. And so do we want to think of it as, oh, well, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad, you're going to be punished. Well, it also doesn't matter if you're good or bad, you might get good things. The point is that if you're good, God can bless you. And in the process, a bad person might be hurt. And if you're bad, God can hurt you. And in the process, a good person might fall in its path. Um, To this point, just really quickly, a little side note from Macbeth. Mm -hmm. Um, In Macbeth, Lady Macduff, uh, before she's about to be killed, uh, spoiler alert, uh, (laughs) a messenger comes, tells her, hey, you're going to die. You got to get out of here. And then she's alone with her son. And she says, whither should I fly? I've done no harm. But I remember now I'm in this earthly world where to do harm is often laudable. To do good sometime accounted dangerous folly. Why then alas do I put up that womanly defense to say I have done no harm? And she goes on to be killed. Her husband had this same theology that somehow if you are righteous, you'll be protected. That's why he left her there. But this folly is what led him to go to England and got his family killed. This is not the Christian teaching. The Christian teaching is not, if you are just, you will not suffer. The Christian teaching is the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so all this is to say, you don't have to come to the conclusion that Lear comes to from the information that Edgar gives him. But Lear has already been having these contemplations about nature. And the result of this is he is shocked into a new belief that now consider him well Thou owest the worm, no silk, the beast, no hide, the sheep, no wool, the cat, no perfume. Ha! There, uh, There's three on his most sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more than such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. Uh, Paul Cantor made a lot of this and said that this is Lear's discovery of nature. Nature being the Hobbesian view. That man is unaccompanied man in the state of nature. This is Lear coming to this sort of like enlightenment view of what nature is and it's something to be fled and all of the things that we put on that protect us, that's what makes society good and nature bad. But the result of it is, as you point out, he becomes a natural philosopher. He's no longer praying to nature or to the gods to protect him from nature or to the gods to punish other people from nature, but he's now inquiring after the causes of nature as something to be studied. He's Mm -hmm. now doing the thing that Socrates was supposedly killed for in Aristophanes uh, account of Socrates in the clouds Mm -hmm. that he's, he's looking, he's inquiring into the first causes and uh, measuring the movement of the earth and the stars. And he's no longer has this piety. He's now studying and observing nature and accepting it for what it is rather than saying that any kind of moral judgment comes by it or through it from the gods or from a God. And what I said before about the Christian thing is I don't think that Edgar necessarily means to bring him to that conclusion. And by the way, he comes to that conclusion on faulty, faulty evidence. Edgar is not a real person in this scene. He's putting this on this poor Tom act and the things he's saying. It's still Edgar. He's still dressed up. This is not the thing itself. This is Edgar in a costume.
0: Mm Right. 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 Yeah, who who ends up yes, yeah, saying things. Yeah, cuz it it is striking that Edgar says these things, insofar as he didn't hear some of Lear's earlier musings. Maybe he did hear enough of what Lear had in mind. I don't know, to have some sense of what he was struggling with or concerned about, but I don't know, I guess it'd be worth thinking about how much of what Lear said that he heard. But yeah, nevertheless, I, I'm not disputing what you're saying, that this may not be where he's leading him. But but again, it could be the case that what Lear has the conclusion that he's drawn, that in light of the fact that the gods don't support justice, he ought to inquire into causes. Um and even he even talks about looking into the causes of like ungratefulness, like in the heart um later. Uh so he even thinks that could be caused, which is to say in a way that there wouldn't be any choice. The heart is caused to be this way or that way. And like, there's not really any, so like the, the premise that underlies justice that we're somehow free to choose seems to be obviated. Now he's like, no, uh, now not to say that he's always going to be consistent on that, but he is starting to think about nature in that kind of way. Um, oh, oh, but, but it seems like the, the, one of the reasons that we can think that, Lear's conclusion isn't one that we should necessarily draw is the fact that like stuff gets sorted out in the afterlife, you know, like just because you're not struck by lightning. I mean, this, even as you're, you're mentioning Aristophanes clouds, like um, even there, it's just like, well, is a bolt of is Zeus more likely to throw a bolt of lightning at a tall tree or at a, a vice ridden person? Uh, it seems like lightning hits trees more often. And so then you could sort to conclude like, okay, Zeus doesn't exist. But that wouldn't be decisive as far as understanding this goes. Um, That if things are adjudicated in the afterlife, if there's like an omniscient, omniscient, you know, all-powerful God, then what Lear is saying wouldn't be a sufficient refutation of the Christian account. Um, It might be a sufficient refutation of a kind of pagan account of Revelation, but they're sort of like moving from one epoch to another. So it's almost like Lear completes the thinking may be required to refute the epoch that he's in the pagan one, but this like new Christian one that's now suddenly emerging this account wouldn't be sufficient. I don't think.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And Edgar seems hip to the Christian account. um, (laughs) Whereas Lear somehow doesn't. And it's not, uh, you can't exactly even call it a Christian account because there is no Christ and there has been no Christianity. But it's, it's maybe you could even just call it like a, you know, the Socratic awakening or something that this idea that the gods, when we look at them in our observation of them in the world as it is, as explained by these gods, it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion you can draw is either Lear's conclusion, there are therefore no gods, or a different conclusion, which would be maybe the Christian or... Um, I won't say Plato's conclusion, but the Platonist conclusion of the people who, who end up being Plato's followers in the later centuries, Mm -hmm. that because the pagan gods are wrong, it doesn't mean that there's no justice in the universe. It means we have to discover the source of that justice in something else, which Mm -hmm. then in a sense uh, can, can be seen as this uh, pagan conclusion or excuse me, this Christian conclusion. And uh, just one other note that, that I, Caught while we were discussing this before we recorded. In a way, Lear has descended into a kind of madness, uh, a Dionysian kind of madness, we could say, and is declaring that God is dead, like another who had the same experience and did the same thing. Um, I I don't think, and of course, (laughs) Shakespeare wrote before Nietzsche, so this is not, it can't be that Shakespeare's writing about Nietzsche, Um, but he does have a lot of strangely interesting themes about that. Uh, Paul Cantor, who I have agreed with some in this episode, disagreed with some in this episode, has a book called Shakespeare's Roman Trilogy, where he talks about slave morality in Shakespeare's Roman Trilogy. Mm -hmm. But um, it seems that Lear, in a way, has come to the same conclusion as Nietzsche and Edgar comes to a different conclusion uh, in the critique of, of the problems that we start to experience in modernity.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh I mean, does it make sense to turn briefly to Act 3, Scene 6 now? Or would you like to say more about scene four?
1: Um, I think I think that everything that I wanted to say in scene four was said. Uh I mean, there's always more to say. Yes, of course, of course. But I think that the dominant themes that I wanted to touch were were touched. Maybe um one joke that i didn't pick up on before that i read this time that i think is interesting just showing that edgar is still using his wit even though he's in disguise mm-hmm. uh act 3 scene 4 his father edgar's father gloucester comes and he says what hath your grace no better company and he's talking to king lear about edgar and mm-hmm. edgar says the prince of darkness is a gentleman <laughs> which is to say uh I mean, in a way it's, he's, the devil is better company than me, but it's also better company than you because you cast your sons out on, on faulty evidence. You know, he, uh, he, he takes a jab at his father, uh, from disguise, which I thought was funny. Yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. That is, that is pretty striking. Um, yeah, that Gloucester sees his son in disguise and has to speak with some dramatic or that there's some like dramatic irony in the, in the scene that Edgar generally speaking has all the information, but like Gloucester still is operating on a lot of false premises here that are about to be taken out from underneath him in the most brutal ways possible. Um Yeah. In scene seven.
1: Yeah. and And, and by the way, in our discussion of for, for next time, I want to talk about, so we see where where Lear's education leads him. And um, is it in scene seven that he... No, no, it's it's in act four. We can compare the results of Edgar and Lear's education in act four. And I mm-hmm. want to do that a little bit. Because right now, we're seeing some of where Lear is headed. But we see where he ends up in act four. And Edgar, we can't really see at all what's going on with him. Because he's under this very thick veil. But. Um, right we can we can compare them and compare it because they both have a similar education right where they're cast out by their families and they are in wretched dangerous nature and they have to survive and they learn what lesson they learn from it
0: right right so uh in act 3 scene 6 something i guess the core of it seems to be that lear wants to put Goneril and Regan on trial. Uh, he wants to bring them to justice through the law, um, which I suppose, well, no, I'll leave it at that and say sort of like, I guess something that seems to be striking and something that's consistent with the education that Lear thinks that he received from Edgar is that he brings Goneril in first and he appoints a couple judges. Uh, he appoints points Edgar and the fool um, to judge. And I guess what seems so remarkable about it is that Goneril gets away. Like she's in the court. She's starting to be questioned. You know, they start to question her and then she gets away. And that that's, strikes me as remarkable because uh, Lear, even in his imagination now, doesn't see justice working, even in this like legal setting. So, okay, so we're, we're saying maybe the gods won't punish um Goneril or something like that but now so too even when she's in court she's not going to be punished even in his imagination um and so too Regan starts to become anatomized as it's said but she doesn't seem to get punished so it seems like Lear is now taking what Edgar had said before like well you could sin or you could not sin but you're cold nevertheless and now Uh, But it also could be the case that you could sin or not sin and also be warm, maybe, is like an implied other side of this difficulty that Lear seems to be trying to uncover, is that, yeah, you could sin, and then maybe nothing bad will happen to you. And like, that's horrible, but uh, this is a potential outcome. And this seems to be something Lear's sense that this injustice might not be punished seems to be part of what's driving him away um, from divine belief towards the study of nature
1: yeah that that seems right um it's this is this is one of the most and uh having seen this staged this is the funniest scene i think in the play Mm -hmm. Uh, which is it's also i mean lear is is at the height of his madness as far as like when he has a lot of lines he's he's more mad maybe a little later on but he's literally running around naked trying to get away from soldiers um (laughs) But, but here he's at the height of his madness when he has a lot of lines. And so it's still pitiful, but, um, he appoints an insane person and a fool to be, uh, judges in his court of mock justice with invisible, uh, with invisible, uh, the accused They're they're not real. They're invisible people. Um, and the, and the fool even makes a joke about this at, uh, line 53 come hither mistress is your name Goneril? Lear, she cannot deny it the fool cry your mercy i took you for a joint stool because he's probably talking to an empty chair right and and when so when i saw this on stage i didn't i hadn't totally caught that joke but when i saw it on stage it's it's like a laugh out loud funny moment uh because the leader's taking this so seriously and the fool is just like what are we doing right now
0: right Uh, It makes sense that that ought to be staged in a funny way, and I've seen a version where it was also funny like that. Um, And uh, maybe, though I hesitate to say that he's necessarily mad here, although I don't dispute that maybe he drops into bouts of madness, or this could be a kind of like, I don't know how to put it, like, manic thing that he's doing, but if or to the extent that it's consistent with the lesson that he thought that he took from Edgar, that you know, you can be good or bad, but you may not be punished. It could be cold. It could be hot. And for his daughters, they've gotten away. And so the cold doesn't come to them or it could come to them or something like that. But, but the justice is not going to be delivered to those who deserve it, that, that, that is consistent. And so I don't know, it, or at least you could put it like this. There's a logic at this point that underlies his madness in the scene. I or or there's some kind of yeah. strange synthesis between madness and some kind of coherence, even if the coherence isn't ultimately sound, um, as we discussed before.
1: I, I think that that's right. That he he is coherent, um, that his his thoughts or his the Ken of his thoughts, it's all headed in the same direction. It was headed, but that the train is off the rails in a certain way because. Hmm. It doesn't, I mean, everything he does here makes, uh, has a sort of sense to it, but the fact that he is talking to an empty room and then that his daughters run away from him in his imagined fantasy, and then he's being attacked by dogs,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but there aren't dogs. Um, (laughs) sure. I mean, he's, he's obviously like not well, even though he like, um, in a way, just returning to Hamlet, who's the other good example of this, uh, Hamlet makes really obvious to everybody except for Polonius that he's pretending. Right? When he's mm-hmm. around Polonius, uh, he's like, he, he hams it up and he's so ridiculous. And Polonius has these little asides where, he's, where he has the famous line that we still use. Though this be madness, there's a method in it. And, mm-hmm. and he just like, Polonius is just this bloviating old doddering fool uh but in a way lear's madness seems to be a more sincere version of that that like he's insane but his brain is still going in the direction that it was before it started um cracking
0: Mm -hmm. you have to think about it more uh as we move into act four like yeah how how insane is he is that is that the right way to put it, because it very well could be, um, well, Bolingbrook, are there any other things that you want to say? I mean, like we've been talking for an hour and a half and we've said a lot of things that are important about this act, but we certainly didn't say nearly all the things that could or should be said, but are there any other important things related to the themes or the scenes that we've talked about today that you feel has been left out?
1: No, I think we've covered what I, what I was interested in saying. And, as you say we didn't even, we covered fairly thoroughly one scene a little bit less thoroughly another and quite a bit less thoroughly another and that's only 3 of 6 um so anybody who's listening to this as i said on the first episode if you haven't read it you need to stop and read this because we're not we're we're trying to offer some guidance on what's going on here but you're not going to it's not going to be of much help if you don't really know this and there's things that that you'll notice that we haven't said, and that we've noticed that that we couldn't bring up. Um, but I think that to to make this a to to allow this to wrap up and be coherent, I think that we've said what needs to be said.
0: Mm-hmm. This was a great shock to me that at the end of this episode, Bolingbroke has exhorted you to read Shakespeare. But <laughs> d- despite my surprise, uh, I completely agree and support this uh, sentiment. <laughs> So Brian Wilson and Bolingbroke are out.